Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on America, China, and the struggle for the 21st century. I'm joined. I'm John Yu. I'm a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. And I'm joined by my hardworking co-host, Misha Ostlin. <laughs> Misha, say hi to the listening audience. Hi to the listening audience. <laughs> which is better than the non-listening audience, which could comprise a very high percentage. Of I our... was going to say, John, which do you think we have more of, the non-listening audience or the listening audience? If As we ask we... the listeners, we won't know who's not listening. And so <laughs> we have a very uh, special guest with us on today's episode, George Schultz, a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution, and one of the great Americans, I would say, of the last century. Uh, Mr. Schultz graduated from Princeton and received his PhD in economics from MIT. And as a young man, right out of school, he volunteered for the Marine Corps and fought in World War II, uh, one of the greatest generation, and then became a professor of economics, uh, left to join the Eisenhower administration, went back into the academy, and then held a series of the most important uh, positions in our country's government. He was Secretary of Labor in the Nixon administration. He became head of the Office of Management of Budget. He became Secretary of the Treasury. And then at the end of the Nixon years left, uh, government went back to the academy and became uh, president of the Bechtel Corporation, one of the largest construction firms in the world. But he wasn't done with public service even then. I think anybody would have had a full career in any one of those single jobs. But then under the Reagan administration, came back to be Secretary of State and I think was uh, responsible, along with members of the Reagan cabinet, and of course, President Reagan himself, in starting the end of the Cold War uh, with... Um, success and triumph for the United States without a shot being fired. I think one of the greatest foreign policy successes, not just in American history, but in the history of the Western world. John, uh, isn't it the case that I think Mr. Schultz is still the only person to have held four different cabinet positions? That's, and he was actually the first director of the Office of Management and Budget. He actually stood up that office. Isn't that right? Oh, no, that's definitely right. Of course, now there's a lot more cabinet offices now. It used to be harder to do when there were only four cabinet offices, and you would have had to get four out of four. But still, it is an amazing accomplishment to have run, not just run those agencies, but have run all of them well uh, and to left uh, with such an impressive record of public service. So uh, welcome, Mr. Schultz, to the Pacific Century podcast. Um, Mr. Secretary, could you kindly tell us about your the, the facts about uh, how to understand the relationship between a country's labor force and productivity growth, specifically related to China? Well, any country's rate of growth in its GDP is a product of the rate of growth of its labor force plus the productivity of that labor force. The productivity of China's labor force is not changing much. It's been okay. But there's a huge contrast between the Deng Xiaoping years 
when there was a natural increase in the labor force and a large movement of people from urban to rural, rural to urban areas. And then the economy just skyrocketed. And that was China's great moment. That has all been reversed. The one-child policy labor force has now taken over. So that means the rate of increase in the labor force is flat. And furthermore, during the one-child policy's heyday, there was a big preference for boys. So the one-child policy amounts to a no-child result in many cases. So you have now China very different in its labor force, not very different in its productivity, but it's bound to slow way down in its, in its um, GDP growth. That's inevitable. That's a fact of life. Can't get around it. Should we expect then a China that is growing at one percent or two percent? We, we're so used to the China that grows at ten percent. How do policymakers now think about the China that they will deal with going forward, not the China that they've had for the past twenty-five years? Now, the reality is China's growth is very, very low. Although they count it differently, they have an incentive for localities to state their growth, and that they add that up. And the incentives means they are overstated in many cases. So I think when they report 10% growth, it's just not correct. Does that change then the, the perception that you have of their actual national strength? They will talk about developing national strength for a long time. They've talked about that. But it's all been predicated, of course, on this this uh, this base of economic growth. How does a policymaker then accurately calculate how strong China is, which translate into the military, the diplomatic, foreign aid, and the like? Well, I think you'd look at their growth, which tells you the capacity they have to do things, and recognize that for a while it was astonishing. And now it's low. And so they maybe haven't gotten used to that yet. But we should be very careful and not get blown away by extravagant statements. Do you think that we then are overstating the threat? In your Wall Street Journal article, you, you say you, you acknowledge that this is unfortunately not the China that you worked so constructively with in the 1980s. Are we overstating the, the challenge we face from China? How, how do we go forward dealing with China if they are in this period of what's going to be very slow growth, if not even some level of contraction? Well, I think China is doing a lot of things that are objectionable, and we should object and do something about it. My own instinct that's out of my experience, which is out of date, but my own instinct on these things is always to work from the inside out rather than from the outside in. In other words, instead of just banging on China from the outside, develop a constructive, positive, quiet relationship with them. You develop, I develop relationships with my counterpart in the Soviet Union and in China that were relationships of trust. And we could talk to each other candidly and directly and get a lot accomplished because of that. There's nothing like that going on. 
Could you actually tell us a little bit about that, particularly with the, the China relationships that you created? It was, in many ways, the golden age of government-to-government relations uh, during the 1980s, the most cooperation. Who were your key uh, interlocutors, your key counterparts, and how did you, how did you create a relationship with them? Well, I found when I became Secretary of State, to my astonishment, that our relations with China were lousy. So I went there with the President's OK, and I said to Deng Xiaoping and Wu Chen, who was my counterpart, you put on the table everything you want to talk about. I'll put on the table everything I want to talk about. Let's make an agenda out of that. And then we'll work our way through that agenda. And I'll agree to come here at least once a year. And you, Wu Chen, come to the United States at least once a year. And we meet at international meetings about three or four times a year. Let's always at those meetings set aside three or four hours just for us, the two of us plus our interpreters who go off somewhere and work our way through this agenda. And that worked very well. It was out of the public eye. We didn't publicize it. We just did it, solved problems. And we got ourselves into a problem-solving mood. And at one moment, I was in Beijing, and I said, whenever I come here, you put me up in the state guest house and we have meetings in the Great Hall. And I know China's a great country. As far as I'm concerned, it's two buildings in a road. So he and his wife took my wife and I on a one-week tour of China. And we really got to know each other. I saw a lot of China and understood it better. It was, it was fantastic. Did they ever visit, did any of the leaders visit you personally at your home that you were able to create, again, that relationship? Yeah, they did. And even... To this day, they call it beefsteak diplomacy. It goes way back. You get a fire in a fireplace, and it's just hot coals. Then take a piece of beef that's thick, and you put salt on one side of it, and put that flat onto the coals, and leave it there for about 20 minutes, and take it off and scrape the salt off, then turn it over and do the same thing on the other side, then scrape that. Then you take it, and you slice it, thin slices, and you took the slices and you put it in melted butter, put that on a piece of bread. It's to die for. Really great. So we got down on our knees in front of the fireplace together, Ruchi Chen and I, and we nursed this steak around. And we can say we worked at this together and it turned out well. It's a little hard to imagine that happening today. Um, the, the last question I had, um, is we have now for almost 10 years um, Xi Jinping being in power, uh, and he's the most consequential leader in in China since uh, Deng, and if not Mao himself. Um, But you met him before he was becoming leader recent i mean just recently before he became leader uh can you tell us a little bit about that because you had one of the earlier encounters with him and how did the u.s government deal with him well we had a um, a uh, track to henry kisser and i and a few other people and we were over there in beijing and he was named to be the new guy but he hadn't become that yet i knew he was going to go to washington and he gave this dinner for us, and I sat down next next to him. And I said, on your way to Washington, why don't you stop in San Francisco? We've got a Chinese-American mayor who's done a good job and good community there. You'll be well-received, and we'll have some fun. And he said, well, I've already agreed to go to Los Angeles, so I can't do that. But if I did come there, 
what I wanted to do is come down there to Stanford because you got something going on there that you call Silicon Valley. And I'd like to find out about it. And the only way to be able to find out about something is to talk to human beings who are there who tell you. That was fascinating that he saw human beings as the source of wisdom. Then, sometime later, this is still Obama's the president, there is something called the Sunnyland Summit Set. And he sends word that he wants to come a day early and bring his wife. My wife gets an SOS from the State Department when she go down to Orange County Airport and help out. She gets down there and she finds there is no federal official there to meet the incoming president of China. First lady said, sends a word she can't come because it's the birthday of one of her children. So the president of China arrives with his wife. And my wife, in the meantime, had gotten a hold of Jerry Brown, our governor. And Jerry came, so at least there was somebody. But then the next day, the president of China cooled his heels. My, my wife took his wife on a trip. And I asked what she like. Oh, she's a charming woman. She's beautifully dressed, curious about everything. She has an operatic quality voice. They have to keep her stage appearance at sound. Those would be more popular than her husband. But a winner. So this is not only a missed opportunity to sit down and develop a candid relationship like I was describing. It was an insult. And the Chinese don't take well the insults. Nobody likes them, but the Chinese are very sensitive. So I don't say we can go back to that time, but that was a time when Xi was much more a man you could have worked with. We could have had an entirely different setup if there had been a different response. Uh, Obama, at this point, I might say, was doing fundraisers in Palo Alto. And and she was was there. I mean, they were both in the same place at the same time, and the, and the president didn't meet. No, different, yeah. Well, um, is there anything else that, that you would leave? We're going to have an election uh, in the next uh, month, um, either a second term for President Trump or former Vice President Biden. What would be your, your top piece of advice to them in dealing with what will be the number one foreign policy issue, which is China? What would you want them to, to pursue? Well, I don't know about them. I know what I would do if I were there. I would go over to Beijing and sit down with Xi and his foreign minister and describe the situation and say, I think there are plenty of problems, but let's start working them from the inside out rather than the outside in, where we can have candid discussions and set up a little group that's just you and me and our interpreters. No outside, no policy, no nothing. We just focus on problems and figure out what to do about them and see if we couldn't set a different tone. Because we don't want to have a bad tone with China, absolutely. It's a big country with lots going on, interesting people, and uh, we can benefit a lot from a good constructive relationship. Well, thank you for uh, the the thoughts, the um, uh, the suggestion, which which isn't absolutely a new way of approaching this, the inside out as opposed to outside in. Uh, and anyone who hasn't read the Wall Street Journal article, 
It's not a new way. It's the way I've always done it. Same way with the Soviet Union, same way with Britain, same way with everybody. Jeffrey Howe in Britain was one of my good friends. It would be new in terms of, of current practice as opposed to the way that you successfully did it in the 1980s, for sure. Uh, and of course, anyone who hasn't read the uh, Wall Street Journal piece should. It's, it's a, um, a completely different argument than you often hear about China based on the facts of, of economic growth, and which is the only way to get really solid policy insight. So, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for taking time uh, today to join the Pacific Century. Okay. Thank you again, Mr. Schultz, for a fascinating view of why we should be reassessing where China is going to be in the future, its strength, the type of economic growth it may or may not have, the impact of uh, slowing uh, the, the declining population on productivity and, and growth rates, and most importantly, as we enter into a new era of U.S.-China relations, U.S. policymakers should be listening to what you're saying to have a, a more nuanced view of the type of China that they may deal with. So we're, we're thrilled that you were able to join us for uh, that, that session. Um, that leaves John and me now to uh, pick up the, the pieces from talking with, with uh, George Schultz. Um, and even though uh, Mr. Schultz was warning us about uh, overestimating China's growth, um, the fact is, is that in many ways, uh, the West, um, the United States, its allies, and of course our allies in Asia are really playing catch up with uh, China with the with the, the the ways that it's been able to expand its power and influence throughout the region and and the degree to which they were willing or not willing to try to um, to counter it or to even confront it. Um, but this week in Tokyo or this past week actually in Tokyo, there was yet another attempt the the rebirth of a prior attempt to come to some sort of allied approach. Uh, in dealing with China, and that is the fabled quad, the quad of Japan, Australia, India, and the United States. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo went over to Tokyo, met with the uh, foreign minister uh, counterparts of his in, in Japan uh, and the Australians and Indians, and basically pledged to revitalize uh, the Quad. John, what did you think when you had heard that the Quad idea had been resurrected from the graveyard of diplomatic initiatives? Doesn't it make sense as a matter of strategy? I mean, obviously, if China's on the rise, you want to put together an alliance which will deter it from engaging in risky behavior that could provoke a conflict. And of course, it makes sense to me, it seems, to get together the most important and most militarily powerful countries in the beginning. Uh, but that it would, uh, so two things. Uh, you know, one is how far is it going to go beyond, say, diplomatic niceties? Is the United States, for example, going to be able to uh, station bases, station on bases in India, for example, has, of course, a large military presence in Japan and Okinawa, um, a small presence in Australia? Uh, could Would you see cooperation where the United States could have air bases uh, in India, could you see a world where India and Australian troops engage in joint exercises where the, you know, the U.S., Japanese, Australian, Indian navies cooperate? So that's one. It's just how deep will it go? 
And then the other question I'd have for you, Misha, is how wide will it go? Uh, it's a good start, but don't you want to have a, an alliance that includes South Korea, Phil Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, countries which have generally been very friendly to the United States, but you can also see them getting worried about China, and you, I could see... Uh, people in Washington being worried about a bandwagon effect where if they think that China is going to prevail in Asia in the long run, that they might just switch and uh, ally with China, which would be rationally in their self-interest. What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, those are those are a lot of, of, of good questions. I think first, it's interesting to go back a little bit to the history of the Quad. It was first proposed by uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, actually his first time around in office back in uh, 2006, 2007. Uh, and it really went nowhere. It was a very different era, which is, is shocking that in just the space of uh, under 15 years, the, the perception of China, the perception of the Chinese threat has changed so much that you could now have countries like India, which were very hesitant to join anything that looked like uh, a, a sort of united front uh, or a containment of, of China now be be eager and willing. And of course, you know, you've seen for the better part of a year now, India and China have been uh, tussling over uh, borders in the Himalayas. Um, you had a clash where at least 20 Indian soldiers died and an unknown number of, of Chinese soldiers as well. So we've had such a dramatic change uh, in, in, in 15 years that what was once seen as a a provocative and confrontational approach is now seen as something that that's actually overdue. Uh, so, so that's number one. And and yet you've you've had the bases of this growing in in different ways. Certainly, uh, prime, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who who just left left office uh, last month. Um, himself had been deepening relations with the Indians, with uh, Prime Minister Modi in India, uh, with the Australians and, and uh, Southeast Asians and the like in ways that, um, again, were, were rare for Japan to be so forward-leaning. Um, and it, it basically, these nations were getting used to working together and working together in many ways against China, because that was, you know, not not overtly necessarily, but that, of course, was was the great issue. One thing that they they had, in fact, that the Japanese have been trying to um, become a regular part of is the Malabar naval exercises between the United States and India, in which Japan has joined um, uh, the Australians, uh, I believe, actually, I'm just blanking, but I think the Australians have been part of Malabar. Someone out there will correct me and we'll, we'll check on it. Um, but other nations like the British are even thinking of trying to get involved with Malabar. You're sort of having an allied uh, naval community that, that is growing. Uh, so, so on the one hand, it's, it's been forming or at least different elements of it have been forming and now they've become fused back together. And certainly under uh, the, the rubric that Secretary Pompeo uh, painted um, or, or provided, this is going to be a permanent and and high level or, or high priority aspect of the diplomacy of all of these nations. Uh, and you, you have to say that the only reason it's happening is because Beijing and Xi Jinping, the, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, brought it on themselves to make all of their uh, neighbors 
so worried. And, and these are, are, again, don't forget, major trading partners nonetheless are so worried that they're doing this. Um, the second part of, of your question, John, is a very interesting one, which is, you know, can it widen? Should it widen? And I think there's at least reason to be hesitant about that because the, the broader, on the one hand, you want a lot of nations involved in the United Front, but the more you do that, the harder it is to reach agreement on on fundamentals and basic issues. And so it actually becomes um, more difficult to to actually maintain the type of united front that you think you're creating by getting more and more nations. And I think what we want to look for is nations that are, are first of all, capable, right? So you start with the Quad itself, as you mentioned, the, the most militarily capable, uh, in some ways, the most economically capable nations of, of the free nations of the region. Um, then I think you would look for partners who really do have a regional perspective. I think from the outside, you'd, you'd very much want to consider Britain as becoming a member of the Quad. It is right now undergoing what it's calling the Integrated Review, which is basically going to come up with a new national security strategy for Britain. And, and the Indo-Pacific is going to play a major role. Britain is going to tilt back to the Indo-Pacific after having been gone for 40 years uh, or 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 at least seeming to have been gone, even though it's still been involved. Um, they've already announced that the Queen Elizabeth, their new aircraft carrier, which they just put into a new carrier strike group, uh, is going to be visiting the Indo-Pacific to do freedom of navigation operations. So I think you want to look for capable partners like um, like Britain uh, and those that really are committed to upholding the the, the structure of, of international relations in the region, which means open seas, open skies, rule of law, and the like. What do you think about that, John? It's interesting. You would think that the best, uh, the most successful alliance in history has been NATO. Uh, you want the alliance to be strong enough to deter the uh, potential enemy, so to to ward off war. You know, could say, you know, almost in a way, if the alliance has to actually go to war, part of the purpose of it has already failed, because the whole idea is just to stop the war from ever occurring. You want to assemble enough forces to cause Beijing to just stop all the mischief it's up to in the South China Sea. And as you said, in the Himalayas, um, in, their, in the um, Tajikistan, all the, in the east, you know, sort of farther Western provinces of China uh, along its borders. So how do you do that? And then the question is, but, but remain flexible, because as you can say, as NATO got older, it became kind of sclerotic, you know, kind of became old, and it, it may have taken in too many members. And uh, you got to have a way for the major countries to still make, <clears throat> excuse me, decisions without every little member being able to veto the entire uh, enterprise. And so I totally, I totally take your point. Um, I do think, though, that you'd want to include the countries that have or the capability to have serious militaries they've chosen not to build them up. But they, you know, you could say Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines, they're the one, those are the countries that are adjacent to the South China Sea. They're the ones that have the most to lose. Uh, Vietnam, too, uh, of course. And they could have capable militaries. They do have some, you know, they're not. It's interesting, those countries. Um, kind of sat out the Cold War in a way. They didn't have to align with the Soviets or the United States, although they were certainly beneficiaries of our <clears throat> you know, open uh, economic system. Uh, but the thing that interests me is, as you said, Japan and India, they really have to change uh, their foreign policies away from their long-term commitment to pacifism and change, become sort of normal nations again, which they it seems to me they have become. And I could I would think maybe countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines would have to put aside 
um, pretensions to neutrality in all this and align more closely with the United States. And I think that's the hard thing of a diplomat is how do you get them to do that when it's so clearly in their national interest? Well, I think I think they would join under ASEAN auspices. I mean, they, they only do things really as ASEAN. Uh, and, and of course, they want ASEAN to be driving uh, the any of these diplomatic and, and even sort of lower level security processes in the region. And, and so it's very hard to get them to act um, individually when you're talking about a region-wide issue. Of course, you know, Japan has bilateral relations and we have bilateral relations. Very hard to be working with the Philippines right now, at least until Duterte leaves office in another couple of years. Um, he needs, uh, you know, he's danced back and forth closer, much closer to China. But even then, he, he will talk about China, you know, threatening the Philippines and what can they do. And so it's sort of a, a what is to be done uh, environment. Um, the difficulty of bringing someone like uh, Vietnam, of course, is the values question. The, the thing that makes the Quad so powerful is that they're all democratic states and they're, they're liberal democratic states um, with, you know, a free press and um, a consumer societies, you know, even in India, which has, you know, a massive growing middle class. Um, certainly Australia and, and the United States and Japan are, are very similar in many ways to each other. Um, and so the values question is one that that immediately uh, becomes becomes central. Um, if you bring in um, you bring in uh, um, uh, Vietnam, that's that that's an issue. Um, some would say it's an issue with some of the other states in the region as well that are not as democratic or are on the spectrum of, of democracy and liberalism. So it is it is a it is a question of who you can bring in. I actually would like to see more outside nations come in. And it's interesting, John, that we're, we're now seeing the Europeans begin to make a much bigger play in the Indo-Pacific. The French uh, have just announced that they are appointing an ambassador to the Indo-Pacific, uh, will be based in, it's their current ambassador to Australia, will be based in Paris, but will travel throughout the region. And they actually have uh, announced an, a new axis. I'm not sure it's the right term to use, but they've announced a new axis. Uh, you would think that was not a term that French would use very often. One, one, but, <laughs> but, but we know that the teaching of history throughout the Western world is in peril. And so the French have created a new axis, the French of all people, uh, but it's an axis of uh, France, Australia, and India that they want to be the new backbone. And of course, the French have uh, over one and a half million French citizens scattered throughout the Indo-Pacific. They have a large number of territories from the uh, the Western Indian Ocean stretching all the way into the Western Pacific Ocean. Uh, and um, I think I think the region accounts for something like 17% of, of French exports. It's, 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 it's significant to the French, and they have come up with several Indo-Pacific strategies, and in fact, a defense strategy, and they have a they have a Pacific squadron, a Pacific fleet, more like a squadron that, that's out there. The Germans just released an Indo-Pacific strategy last month. It's it's fascinating to read. Um, it, it's based on, on open trading, you know, free trading lines and the like, exactly what you'd expect from Germany, uh, but also the, the, you know, the sort of liberal issue. And the British are writing an Indo-Pacific strategy right now, uh, and they will, will likely be coming out with something later this year or early next year. And the British also have over one and a half million Britons living throughout the Indo-Pacific. You have a, a, a I should know the number, and I don't offhand. I think it's it's not quite a dozen, but it's close to that. Uh, Commonwealth nations in 
the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and of course, the British have bases there. They're going to be operating um, f throughout the Indian Ocean into the Western Pacific. They're going to be operating out of Dukum in Oman. Uh, and uh, they have, of course, Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. The French have uh, Reunion and, and other ports. So it, there's, there's, there's actually a, a big role that the Europeans yeah. can play. And, and I'd like now, to the see them about, do more. The thing about the Europeans is they can't even meet their NATO commitments. I mean, they're, you know, they're all good at drafting policy papers and this and that and claiming they're going to do this and that. But, you know, they can't even defend themselves from Russia without us. I don't see how they're going to project power all the way around to the Pacific. You know, so yeah, I, I think, you, you know, Germany, right? Like, do they got any tanks working in Syria? Aspirational <laughs> I mean, paper, of course. <laughs> yeah. You know, so Fran, you know, it's interesting though. It's, 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 I, I love to make fun of the Europeans because um, they deserve it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, France, you know, they do have, they do play a kind of interventionist role in, in Africa. And yeah. Great Britain historically has had the Navy and troops. And the sad thing is the Royal Navy's down to like what, one aircraft carrier now. They'll have two. And, they'll have oh, two. they have two? They're, they're building oh, the second two. one, they'll Prince of Wales, we'll Queen Elizabeth two. and Prince of Wales. And then, um, you know, the, you know, France, I mean, so Great Britain, France, Germany, yeah, they, I don't see, I mean, they, they have a lot of economic interests in the Pacific, but how much they can actually do in the Pacific against a country like a China, like France, you know, they can go around pushing around small African dictatorships where they used to be colonies have made everybody speak their language. So they take them seriously. But I wouldn't rely on any of them to make a difference when it comes to the to a, you know standing up to a country as powerful as uh, China. And I'm not even convinced they would if it push came to shove, given how dependent the economies in Germany, for example, are on Chinese trade. I just don't trust them to do the right thing. I think they're going to cut and run on us. I would say it's interesting, particularly with France and the UK now, the the shift in rhetoric against China. Um, uh, warning about overdependence and and warning uh, about um, you know the fact that China is becoming much more intrusive in Europe, not to mention uh, of course in Asia. So uh, I would see, but let me bring up history. In fact, it's interesting you say that because we can actually go back to the 19th century and see a very similar dynamic. You mentioned how much power do they actually have? I think I think what. Uh, you know, France always likes to act alone. I think it, it, and it does have this Pacific squadron, and I think it would like to, to you know, see that it could certainly protect its own dependencies. Uh, but um, I, I think the real play that they're that they're considering is how do you join? And again, the French little more standoffish, but I think the British very much are thinking how would you join larger actors in the region like the US, like Japan, like Australia. And here we could go back to the 19th century because when the, uh, the British uh, in particular were uh, expanding their commercial empire, uh, in in Asia, they were they were much more loath to take over actual territory other than trading entrepot uh, like Singapore and Hong Kong. They didn't really want large territory, right? They didn't do what the Dutch did uh, in in what we used to call Indochina. They didn't do what the French did in Indochina, uh, or what the the Germans tried to take over territory. You know, later on in mainland China, the French did the same thing. The British were happy with access, even though there were times they took over territory in Asia. But what they did do was put together international, what we would call coalitions of the willing today. And uh, they did that um, when they would, uh, first. so first of all, in 1860, uh, the Second Era War was a French-British affair uh, that really, you know, set the Qing dynasty on the road to dissolution. Um, 
Also, in Japan, interestingly, there were two uh, allied bombardments of Japanese domains, not of the Tokugawa shogunate, who, who were the, the sort of nominal central government, not really, but they acted as such in, in, in foreign affairs, but uh, these very two powerful domains out in the West, one of which tried to stop free trade, tried to stop free passage into the Japan's Inland Sea, and another one which had killed a, uh, a British subject. But in particularly the one, uh, it was Choshu Domain in 1863 that tried to stop free trade. Um, the British put together an international squadron that included themselves, the French, uh, the Dutch, and the U.S. In fact, the U.S. sent a ship that bombarded these Japanese positions. So I think, I think that's really how they're looking at. I don't think the, the Europeans really have the pretension of playing any type of role that the U.S. can play in the region, but that they, and certainly the British and, and maybe the French even, are willing to, to consider how would you join larger allied groups that are trying to uphold freedom of navigation today? Yeah, I, I mean, I could see that, but I don't want, I don't think the Europeans should have any say in how the United States actually acts in uh, the Pacific. They're going to benefit no matter what we do. I mean, they'll free ride off us. They'll probably try to contribute as little as necessary. And at the same time, try to tell us what to do all the time, which is what they do with us all around the world anyway. I think it's time we throw off this. Uh, yeah, we throw off this kind of this weird, <laughs> this weird inferiority complex we have to the Europeans, which we've had in America since you know 1776. I think that's because guys like you are running off to the French bakeries all the time. <laughs> oh, you kidding? During COVID, they're all shut down now. They've all gone out of business out of here. Tartine Bakery, one of the great bakeries in America, just two blocks from my office. We're gonna have to Killed have a, a tartine. COVID. Corner, a tartine corner on the Pacific Century, because this is at least the second time that you've mentioned this and the, and the crushing blow it is it to is. your mid-morning repast. So, well, I think it's I think it'll be interesting to keep watching um, what the quad does. I think it's going to be important. I, I actually do think um, that there, there's some movement towards bringing in some of these outside players. And certainly, let's be honest, the nations in the region would, would like to see other outside players, other than just the United States. Um, they don't always like having to deal just with us. And so they might, you know, they might try to play the Europeans against us a little bit, or at least say, hey, there are others as well. So I, I, it's just, it's interesting because the U.S. wasn't interested in that for a very long time. The Europeans weren't interested in it for a very long time. And now the geopolitical equation has changed so dramatically and so quickly that in 10 years, it might look very different. You might actually see, you know, larger, bizarre as it sounds, larger European bases in Asia because they they do they are committed to maintaining the, the freedom of navigation. And um, obviously, they know they're not going to be like the U.S. Navy. But the fear is that the U.S. Navy isn't going to be the U.S. Navy in 10 years, that it, that it will be smaller, that it may not be able to do all the things that it wants to do. And we're going to have to act a lot more with the Japanese, a lot more with the Indians, a lot more with the Australians, and think more creatively about how you maintain free access throughout this entire region if, if it's harder and harder for us to get there. Um, so, John, I think, I think that's it. I think we should end just by noting that this week was the 109th. Uh, National Day of the Republic of China, uh, which of course now primarily celebrated on Taiwan, but it is uh, it is marks uh, the beginning of Republican China, of a China that and Taiwan is free, uh, a a democratic Chinese um, 
state, uh, one that is now playing a much larger role in the world, uh, where the Trump administration in particular has increased uh, all types of interactions with it. Uh, and hopefully that's something that's going to continue. Yeah, I, the thing I think is interesting is, you know, people say <clears throat> that uh, until the election is over and the new president, whoever it is to be, Trump or Biden takes office, that China, mainland China, communist China has been uh, kind of laying low, not pushing on things too hard, but a lot of, I think you can see a potential crisis arising in Taiwan uh, at the in the next administration, next term of the next president, because uh, China's pursuing these aggressive expansionist moves, and they just absorbed Hong Kong and have, I mean, fully absorbed it. Of course, they had terror title to it, but they just, you know, suppressed, they're suppressing democracy there now. It's, uh, they're making claims to the South China Sea. I could easily see them pushing to try to um, exercise more sway in Taiwan, too. And I think that'll be one of the Whoever wins the election, that'll be one of the early foreign policy crises is what to how far would the United States go in defending Taiwan? And we've made mistakes like that in the past in that region. For example, it reminds me of how the Korean War started because the United States made the mistake of publicly saying that uh, Korea was outside uh, the perimeter that the United States wanted to defend back in 1949 and 1950. And only uh, that kind of uh, weakness only encouraged North Korea with the support of the Chinese and the Soviets to invade. And in fact, it wasn't until those speeches by Dean Acheson and General MacArthur were made, the, the historical evidence seems to show that Russia and China were actually restraining North Korea because they were worried uh, about what the United States might do. That's a success. That's deterrence at work. You wonder whether that'll continue. Uh, with um, Taiwan in the future. I agree. Um, it, it's fascinating how what seem to be anodyne statements, things that certainly we didn't interpret as giving one meaning, sent signals uh, that we didn't intend. Um, I would say we're hopefully we're doing the opposite. We're sending good signals right now with um, with Taiwan. So I think we'll leave it there. We'll leave it with the quad. We'll leave it with Taiwan. Once again, we're, we're very grateful to George Schultz for joining us. Uh, and we will be back with new guests coming up in just a few weeks uh, on the Pacific Century. So, John, say goodbye to everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.